today, Rasa, Sima, and myself, Olga, are sitting with Heather White. Heather is a nonprofit founder, executive, and researcher, and she has 25 years leadership experience in international advocacy and research on labor rights issues. Heather is the documentary co-director and producer of Complicit, which is a an amazing documentary film and recipient of nine international film awards festivals uh film awards sorry um and uh for which we will be talking quite a lot uh today and heather has also been a network fellow at the uh, safra center for ethics in harvard university researching on social auditing's failure to protect workers in global apparel and tech manufacturers and the president and founder of new standards to the uh, which is an organization that advised the US and the uh, and European companies uh, and maybe better known or or really very well recognized in the sector to be the founder and president of Verite yeah. so heather thank you very much for coming and welcome to the rights of others thank you very much so it's, um, as I said, it's, it's great to have you here. It's, you are, of course, been instrumental into the development of some of the practices that we have now and some of the um, uh, uh, trends and actually, you know, understanding what the role of uh, social auditing and monitoring of supply chains and engaging with workers um, definitely is. So um, I wanted to ask you, what are you working on at the moment? Well, well keeps you busy in this uh, coronavirus month? Oh, well, we're in uh, the 12th month of the coronavirus. And so there's been quite a few things that have kept me busy uh, during this time. But I would say that probably the um, most, uh, for me, interesting area of focus has been uh, working on a screenplay. Uh, I decided mm -hmm. during the lockdown that I wanted to learn how to write a screenplay after working on a, a documentary film for four mm -hmm. years and uh, traveling with it for a couple of years um, while it was premiering in film festivals. Mm -hmm. I decided I wanted to learn to write a screenplay and mm -hmm. experiment with delivering information to an audience and to uh, consumers in a different format. Um, that that is uh, fascinating. I, I think that is uh, one of the features of your career. No, you start you start something, get very you know kind of exhausted in in the terms of getting really good at it, but also advancing and progressing a lot uh, on it, and then in a way move to another media. No, because that uh, wasn't as well what happened when when you uh, became a film director i guess so, uh, when uh, with complicit uh, tell me a little bit about how did this happen how did you uh, think well i've done a lot of uh, the kind of work that um, you were doing with verite and uh, now is the time to to try to tell these stories in a different way um well i guess it started with uh when i was at verite and was receiving information feedback, uh, negative feedback from um, companies periodically uh, that the reports that we were preparing for them, the audit reports that went into very um, into very detailed uh, description of the problems that we were finding in their factories. 
Uh, we weren't just sending out a one-page report, which ultimately I learned is what they wanted and now has kind of become the standard in the industry. We were sending out a 40-page report going into um, all of the information that we gathered from the workers because I'd come out of a program um, at MIT before I started Verite uh, where I had been doing doctoral research for three years. And I was really clear that I wanted our reports to meet academic standards so that if anybody outside of the uh, original recipients of the report of the uh, findings, which usually had you know quite a bit of problems, especially at that time, because uh, China was still dealing with a lot of um, workplace disasters, fires, uh, ceiling collapses, things like that, as well as in uh, the other countries where we also worked, but pretty much uh, at the beginning, we did quite a bit in China. Um, I wanted the report to stand up to uh, public scrutiny, um, but kept getting feedback and pushback from the brands that we were giving them reports that were too long and they didn't want to read them. Um, so gradually over time, we experimented with other ways of presenting the information, still getting the uh, most important details, of course, um, included, but also trying to meet expectations uh, around the realities of uh, how much time people had to spend and their desire just to focus on sometimes the most extreme problems, the deal breakers. You know, there are uh, certain types of violations like child labor or prison labor, for example, where the brands wanted to know immediately with a phone call if that was uh, discovered during the course of the audit. Whereas some other things like uh, discrimination against women and, you know, things that had to do with gender or freedom of association were usually ignored and never addressed anyway, um, except for a few rare examples. Um, so I was, I guess I was comfortable with um, always trying to adapt and change according to uh, what people's expectations were and what uh, they were capable of incorporating, but at the same time wanting to have as much of an impact as possible. Um, so mm -hmm. over time, uh, I was at Verite for 10 years, I reached the point uh, around um, the time in uh, 2005 when I was getting ready to leave the organization where I felt that people didn't even want to read reports anymore, um, that they actually wanted to get the information in other ways. And so I started working with a colleague um, who's been running an organization called Tao's Network in China um, for the last, I don't know, 12 or 15 years now. Um, we started working on different ways of presenting information to workers just as an experiment um, in terms of like skits or um, interactive peer-to-peer, um, -peer, uh, you know, just different modalities so mm -hmm. that people wouldn't have to sit in a chair after they'd worked a 10 hour shift to receive information about what are their labor rights and what types of uh, protections they had in the workplace when they were already exhausted. Um, mm -hmm. Because we felt that the ways that they could absorb information um, that had to do with, you know, being able to laugh and enjoy and, and feel like they were entertained and that they were connecting with people was an important way to learn as well. Um, so I decided that I was just not going to look back and I wasn't going to rep write reports anymore. Um, 
And then I received a book contract from The Nation, which is a magazine uh, in New York, a progressive magazine, to go to China and report on the um, growing phenomenon of mega, fac mega factories in southern China that uh, have 200 to 300,000 workers. And that was a new development over the last several years as big tech increasingly outsourced production to China and with Apple's um, creation of the iPad and the iPhone, they decided that they were going to source 100% of production for both of those lines, as well as getting a lot for the iPods as well um, from China. So I went to um, China with this uh, book project to start reporting on what was happening um, in the Pearl River Delta region around Shenzhen and Guangzhou. And the first week that I was there, I discovered with a colleague that there were so many workers in hospitals who'd been poisoned by toxic chemicals that um, we needed to get the word out and want to tell the story. And I decided that it'd be best to tell it as a film. Uh, because the the impact of reading a report or it, in the case of my project was a book. It, it probably wouldn't have been published for a year and a half at the earliest. Um, I just felt like we couldn't wait and that we needed to get some information to people as soon as possible so that we could start putting pressure on the company. And so I reached out to a lot of the NGOs and allies around the world that I'd worked with previously and asked them if they wanted to join a campaign uh, to put pressure on Apple about benzene and n-hexane. And my colleague uh, was a videographer and we started interviewing workers and getting footage and created a 10 minute trailer that came out about a year later. Uh, but we were able to get clips out sooner than that, and we were able to launch a campaign um, with the help of some nonprofits that joined us, and they were really integral. But I learned through that experience that the visual medium of storytelling um, was the most powerful way to convey, especially something that is as um, scandalous as what we had found, and also which implicated everybody who owns you know, an electronic device that we're using all the time, um, we're all connected. And so currently with the screenplay that I'm working on, I'm um, hoping to convey information about what's happening in China with the uh, forced labor of the Uyghur uh, ethnic minority. Um, also uh, within the context of what we've been dealing with, with uh, coronavirus. Um, so it's, it's a COVID thriller, but it also, but it also has some, um, I think, important information to help raise awareness because trying to raise awareness around what's happening in Xinjiang right now is really difficult. And we saw just this week with um, President Biden really stepping back in terms of uh, what he said he's going to be willing to engage with China um, around the uh, genocide that's happening in Xinjiang and Xinjiang and also um, the ongoing um, pressure that the Tibetans are under all the time 
um, is it sounds like those are just not going to be on the table, at least right right now. And so I feel very strongly that we've got to try to get the word out in other ways. And yeah, uh, sorry, uh, you're right. Like it's it's I've 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 tried my best also to um, actually convert this visual medium to my social research aspects because most of the videos i've seen they try to like condense the statistics and you know translate it but especially the topics which you are talking about now there is a lot of research firms and social research firms which are actually hiring people who have both of these uh, um, experiences or somehow they understand that how two outputs could be created and i've seen the documentary which you talked about maybe maybe it's just the trailer because it was just three minutes um yeah it's fantastic i mean just three minutes beautiful i mean i am personally really enthusiastic about filmmaking and document documentary making it's very good it's so so we'll share the link definitely uh, but you just mentioned about Uyghur forced labor. I, it would be good if you tell us a bit of the storyline, because uh, you mentioned this word organ fast lane, and I thought it's very interesting, and it must have a lot of backstory behind this. Yeah, the uh, pressure against the Uyghur ethnic minority who are Muslim in China has been ongoing now for more than 10 years in terms of the reporting that we've been getting in the West about it. And what's happened is that China invaded Tibet in um, 1959, 1958, and they also um, annexed Xinjiang province, as it's called, which is the far northwestern territory that's um, included on Chinese maps today. Uh, but for a long time, that region was independent, and the people that live there are not Han Chinese. They're actually uh, more related to uh, Turkish people. And they look different. They have green eyes often when I traveled in China. People thought that I was a Uyghur and would ask me if I um, was from that region because I spoke Mandarin and I had green eyes. And that's basically how they define Uyghurs in the rest of China is if, uh, yeah, and if you have got round, round eyes as they call it. Um, but the situation with the uh, Chinese annexation of Xinjiang province is really accelerated in terms of the authoritarian pressure that's being put on people in the region who've never accepted that they want to be part of China. And the, I think, um, trigger for the pressure on the people there really started to happen with the uh, rise of um, the uh, of ISIS and the world's concern around global terrorism because China was able to claim to the West that they were basically dealing with an extremist Muslim minority that threatened the stability of the country and that they should be allowed to crack down on them uh, without interference from the West. 
And so that's been going on now um, in an accelerated manner for several years, ever since 9-11 uh, happened. Um, it's actually gotten a lot worse. And so what I was referring to in the article in um, Responsible Investor is the efforts of uh, some activists that have been able to get footage and photographs because the region basically has been sealed off to Westerners and journalists for several years uh, while this crackdown is happening. And some of the articles and the information that's been coming out are so concerning that people just want to look away I and mean, they just really don't want to address the fact that we're getting reports that China's engaging in uh, forced organ donations of the Uyghur population. This uh, information actually first started coming out with China's crackdown on a, a movement called the Following Gong, which was a meditation and kind of a, a spiritual uh, practice similar to yoga. And the information that started coming out about members of the following going being used for organ donations against their will. Uh, didn't get very much coverage in the media, but there were articles periodically. And then with the uh, crackdown on the Uyghurs, reports started coming out that everybody who gets arrested um, by the Chinese police in the Xinjiang region and in Ulamuchi, which is the capital city, are, are taken in for uh, blood typing. And so I mean, people can read about it online. There are a lot of reports now, and it's it's definitely out there in terms of information. Um, but there have been a number of hospitals that have been built over the last few years that are right near airports. And these organ fast lanes are for the purpose of ambulances um, that are providing organs for people who are flying in from around the world for organ transplants. And China's gotten a lot of pressure. They've had to respond to um, questions in the UN, but of course they have a lot of power in the UN because they're on the Security Council and um, they've tried to do what they can to deflect the criticism. Uh, but there's quite a bit of information out there and more footage that you can find um, over the last few years on YouTube and elsewhere that and also some uh, satellite imagery that has been uh, uploaded onto the web uh, from folks who've been uh, involved in research projects, taking a look at the detention centers that are now housing over a million people. Um, the hospitals, there's a lot of crematoria that have been built near these hospitals. I mean, it's just horrible. It's a genocide situation. And since I've been working in China for most of my career, I feel compelled to try to get the word out. However, I can, I'm not associated uh, institutionally in terms of working for a nonprofit or a campaign at the moment um, that's addressing the issue. But uh, just from my experience and uh, the networks that I have, I've decided that I feel that it's important now that there are reports that Uyghur forced laborers in the factories that are producing for global brands for the products that we're buying and they're being implicated in, in big tech as well as apparel and footwear. And 
even when I was traveling in China, making complicit, we did meet people who had been working in factories that had uh, Uyghur workers who'd been sent there and um, told some stories about uh, what they were dealing with. And in one factory in particular, a footwear factory, um, three young women had committed suicide um, just from the stress and the harassment uh, that they were experiencing. So I feel it's important to try to get the word out. And I realized that when there's horrendous stories that are happening at the same time they're in the news that there are other terrible things happening around the world, people reach a saturation point sometimes and they just say, I can't, I can't deal with any more bad news. But when it comes to entertainment, they seem to have an endless capacity <laughs> That's a very good for <laughs> entertaining themselves if they think it's fiction. Um, yeah. With, you know, some really, uh, you know, like dealing with violence and that sort of thing in mm. entertainment. You know, people have, a, it seems like, a, a bottomless pit almost um, for being able to take in information that is uh, potentially disturbing. But if it's in the entertainment category, then um, they can handle it. So I decided, yes. well, I'm going to work on a screenplay. I'm going to tell this story as fiction. And uh, let's see what happens. So, so Heather, I have to say, um, I actually have been wanting to meet you for a couple of years. <laughs> and I and actually, I did realize and I, and when I when I did read the more information, I was like, okay, so this is the Heather White. So I saw complicit um, a few years ago when I was in Norway, it was actually there was an event that was hosted by Amnesty Norway. And I um, was so uh, it was so well done. I was so upset after I saw it. And I it's it's and, um, you know, what you have referred to sort of your transition from doing these high quality, intense reports, right, which capture the abuses, the violations and using that as a way to on palm oil plantations in Indonesia, uh, connected to uh, Wilmar's uh, plantations, their supply. Wilmar, of course, is the world's biggest uh, trader in palm oil. Uh, and in our and in the report that was produced, it named all their buyers. And 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 um, we did have conversations with Wilmar. And and what we found out is that afterwards, Wilmar actually worked with wanted to work with Verite and did work with Verite to redress and to fix, you know, some of the issues on the plantations. And that was. That was quite interesting. So that was my first four into into Verite, and I know I appreciate you weren't there anymore. Um, but I, it was, yeah, it was actually very uh, refreshing. I have to say to work, you know, with Verite. Although we weren't working together, we were we agreed on what the problem was. We agreed what the goal was, and then you know they were actually willing to. Uh, take the company on that, you know, make it clear to the company what they needed to do. Um, so I, my question, you know, when I saw Complicit, the first thing that occurred to me afterwards was like, a Apple must be held to account. Now, this is all I kept thinking about, like, I can't believe this, Foxcom, Apple, Apple must be held to account. And actually, uh, I had a lot of meetings with Apple, we, you know, at the time when years ago, we produced this Cobalt report. Uh, similarly, when I was in Amnesty, it led to discussion, it really kind of rattled Apple in my words and you know they did 
in terms of the action and the change, you know, they traced their cobalt supply chains back in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know, they started to, um, I'm, very, I'm quite critical of Apple on what they were showed what they could do there was that they shift the way that the industry was, was responding to that issue, right? Because they, they, they took an action as a company, which then set a standard for the other companies that, well, if we can do it, you can do it too. That is specifically mapping back your cobalt supply chains to where human rights abuses occurred. So how, in terms of you, I'm, I'm interested how, how you feel with the with the more recent and this additional situation in China that you've highlighted, you know the problem here, as I see it, is that we have a predatory companies that are multinationals are essentially using this predatory economic model, right? Their profits are prefaced off of human rights uh, abuses and violations and environmental harms. So um, you know we see that in complicit the movie or the, the documentary. And we see that now in the um, sort of other supply chains, right? So what, in your work, what, what have you done like in terms of conversations with companies specifically, you know, to, you know, exposing it's such a great issue, but how have they responded in conversations? Have you seen action that actually has the potential to be meaningful or, or would you say that actually these companies are never going to change their behavior? So we need to focus on, I don't know, the government, the UN, like other entry points for, for getting, for stopping this, not just getting the change, for stopping the abuses and the violations and, and this type of predatory economic model that, you know, unless we do something, it's going to continue, you know, forever. Yeah, the economic model is definitely predatory. Why I'm so concerned um, with the situation in Xinjiang is that we're actually now seeing a situation where there's genocide and companies are profiting from it and consumers have no say in the matter. So that even individuals who would never want to have anything to do with the kinds of practices that are taking place are actually being pulled into it by virtue of um, just the products that they're buying. And so I think that, you know, at some point, hopefully, we're um, going to be able to develop some solutions. And as a result of my working on these issues for the last 20 years or so, I really feel strongly that we've got to get governments more involved and the legal compliance and the legal accountability by the corporations needs to be enhanced and legislation and rules need to be put in place. Because one of the things I found is that as long as it's a environment of self-reporting, self-regulation, where companies agree to work on a multi-stakeholder approach to addressing problems where they've got NGOs they've captured and they've got other groups yeah. that are working on the periphery and they um, drag out the problem for several years while they're preparing a report that basically does nothing um, yes. in terms of uh, actually addressing the problem and initiating change. And they haven't gotten the industry behind them. I mean, on occasion, when the largest company in the industry makes a move, then others will follow. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're all going to get together to actually raise standards. Because for example, in Bangladesh, for years, yes. there was auditing of factories, supposedly there was monitoring, there were some multi-stakeholder initiatives, Levi's issued a report, public report. And then the absolute worst 
yeah. things started happening years later, 10 years into it, 11 years, 12 years into it, you know, then they had the Rana Plaza factory collapse. Um, they had the Kazreen fire. Every time a company yeah. went to do an audit in Dhaka, Bangladesh, they, no they noted that there were no fire escapes on the buildings where these garment factories are located because often the factories are on the the factories are large, you know, seven or eight stories high, and the factories are on the fifth to the top level of the factory. No fire escapes for years. Nobody did anything. So, you know, none of their factories should ever have passed an audit. But yet, you know, business as usual not only continued, but just continued to grow and grow until, you know, Bangladesh is the second largest garment exporter in the world. So um, I really do feel strongly that because of the slow pace and the mm -hmm. efforts by companies when there are multi-stakeholder efforts to try to enact change within their sector, they basically just go about trying to capture the NGOs and their critics. They get them to sign non-disclosure agreements, non-defamation agreements mm -hmm. before they even agree to sit down at the table with them. And we've seen that that basically reduces pressure and eliminates their critics from even speaking out publicly against them anymore. And then maybe a couple of years later, there might be a report saying what they worked on. But, you know, has cobalt been resolved in the Congo? No. I mean, it's, no, and, know, and the redress is still outstanding. You're totally right, because that's what happened in the cobalt situation, right? It, it led to a number of industry-led initiatives. Every single company engaged in these cobalt-related initiatives. But actually, if you ask if any of those workers who've been working, or children who've been working in hazardous conditions received any redress, remedy, no. And it's been it's been it's been at least five years since that initial report was produced. I mean, I I'm interested in Olga's take on this because what you're talking to, I I agree with you, and and I I think we all agree self-reporting on this call at least is is doesn't work. Uh, we talk a lot about sort of law and legal cases. Um, I I feel that you know we're going ten years since the UN guiding principles on business and human rights came into effect, right? And and in many ways. You know, a lot of the tools that, you know, we have been using as advocates in the civil society community around this due diligence, human rights due diligence and companies, you don't just report it, you do it. And, and I, I feel a little bit exhausted by this narrative. <laughs> and we have some, like we've got a law now, potential law in the EU, you know, there's laws pop popping up. It's been 10 years of heavy pushing for this. And, and as we know, when they become laws, what do the companies, you know, we don't want just reporting, we want action and implementation. You know, that's what we want. You know, the, you know, the, the law is just supposed to be pushing for that. So I don't know, Olga, corporate crimes. I mean, it sounds to me like these are pretty serious human rights, they're crimes, right? They're human rights crimes. They're not even in, uh, they're in that category. This push yeah, for I, corporate crimes, what do you think? For supply chains specifically, supply chain actors to get away with it, the benefiting. I agree. And I think, and this is something that um, Heather is very much something that I, I, 
I've been thinking of since your uh, film as well. They, and Sima, you just said it, this element of redress. So a human right, the, the human rights, uh, as we know, are um, our inherent human rights. They, uh, have, we have the right to have them respected, protected. And when they are being violated, we have a right to reparation and redress and, and remediation. And uh, so uh, John Ruggie didn't invent anything. This is a, uh, it's a pillar three that doesn't come out of uh, thin air. This is what uh, the human rights uh, and, and dignity means. And I think, um, uh, Sima, what you says, if we uh, talk about it in terms of, of criminality, then the issue of redress is very much in there as well as, a, as a, um, a, the rights of the victim. And I think, uh, Heather, this is, when I was watching Complicit, and I've watched it many times, I've had the privilege and the, and the pleasure to watch it many times, that is the same thing I kept on thinking, from, not just from the uh, uh, view of the perpetrator. So when in criminal law, in international criminal law in particular, we talk about the perpetrator, and the victim or the survivor, but the victim is the, is the one that has the victim's rights. So the, not just from the point of view of the perpetrator, which is the corporation, the, the supply chain structure, the predatory economic system, but also from the point of view of the victim, where is the redress of this? Why are these people left alone to deal with a super complex system that you demonstrated here in which it, it's even in the hands of the company that you can access a health care and health uh, um, uh, attention. The company has to provide you a certificate that you actually got sick because of that. So the, the element, I think, Sima, the element of corporate crimes brings, brings this uh, double perspective, mm -hmm. not just on the victim, not just on the perpetrator, but also the victim. But please, Heather, uh, 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 I would love to to hear your view as well about the this element of of redress because um yeah redress is such an important issue but in the case of corporate crime at least regarding the issues that we were dealing with in complicit it's just not happening even when it would be so easy for the companies to write a check to the workers that have been harmed they just won't do it. I mean, when the trailer for Complicit came out, for example, I did receive an email um, finally from Apple because I'd been emailing them regularly and calling and, you know, of course, getting nowhere. And uh, did get an um, email saying, could you please send us the names and the contact information of the workers in your film so that we can, so that we can follow up. And... Uh, I wasn't going to do that because I didn't want to potentially risk people's lives because what was going to happen if I gave the personal information to a corporation who works with a company like Foxconn, which is being accused of killing workers um, with its irresponsible chemical management. and. Actually, while we were there, there were other allegations about worker deaths that we couldn't include in the film. Um, but it's not not a safe situation to share information um, about these workers. Plus, the, the factory already has all the information. They know which workers have claims. And Apple had received personal letters from many of the 
workers' families and from the workers themselves that had initially been poisoned by N-hexane, asking for assistance. Um, and the letters were written by NGOs from Hong Kong, who, by the way, are no longer able to operate there because of the Chinese crackdown on civil society and um, charitable groups in Hong Kong over the last few years. But the uh, response from Apple basically was asking me for the names of these workers. And I told them that they were able to find those uh, workers through the claims <clears throat> and the um, letters that they'd already received and that I hoped that they would follow up. And they never followed up. Nothing ever happened. Um, the beauty of the subcontracting model for global corporations, for globetrotting corporations, is that there is no accountability and there's never going to be any redress unless laws change and the uh, international um, environment for holding companies responsible for what happens to workers and their supply chains and the communities that are getting poisoned, for example, by the toxic tailings and the toxic waste that's being created by the cobalt and the other uh, minerals and um, inputs for you know this huge technology uh, era that we're currently living in. Until those laws have been created, there's going to be no compliance um, with the company's own codes of conduct, and there's not going to be redress. There's something that's, I think, a bit encouraging that's on the horizon um, that I attended a meeting at EU Parliament about uh, initiative called the the binding treaty it's called on the website you can find it as bindingtreaty.org but it's basically a binding treaty on um, human rights and corporate accountability that uh, needs to be ratified by many countries in order for it to actually uh, yeah. be codified into law and hopefully over time that's going to happen uh, but they at the meeting we're saying that they expect it to be a 10-year process and one of the first countries that agreed to sign on to it is china so i'm not sure um, exactly what the final form of this treaty <laughs> the final form of this treaty is going to be in terms of uh, just how high the bar is in terms of uh, liabilities but um i really feel that laws and regulations are important which is why i was encouraged by the movement towards initiating more rules around modern slavery and the presence of forced labor in the supply chains of companies uh, that's been taken up by governments and basically all of the Western democracies. Uh, so I'm hoping that we'll see some progress there as well. But that's one of the reasons why I was kind of impressed by Biden's um, remarks this yeah. week, because it seemed like if, if he's not going to hold China accountable for any of um, these violations. Yeah. Where is this legislate? Where is this legislation going to go? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I would love to see. Um, I mean, if we have, for example, this EU human rights due diligence law. I know one proposal that's on the table are sanctions, right? Sanctions for companies, and and you know, we it would be great if actually you know, stuff like EU Parliament and the Commission, it's, I mean, you know, the sanctions are significant, sanctions against companies who knowingly are benefiting from sort of human rights abuses and human rights crimes. It's, and, um, you know, I, I also would feel like, you know, it's about time, like, I mean, 
you know, it's, you know, we've got the ICC, but there are lots of the benefit of the International Criminal Court, and I know the US is not has not ratified it, but for countries that have is that in their in their own domestic frameworks, they have incorporated, you know, those crimes, right? So you refer to the crime of genocide. And in some uh, domestic frameworks, companies can actually also face criminal liability for that. Um, you know, so uh, my hope is that, you know, in our toolbox, you know, that we are able to, when the situation and facts require it, we use and we access these really, these really strong tools as a deterrent, but also, you know, get, as a way of opening that, up that conversation about redress, about we got to, it has to stop and there needs to be a change. I just, I'm worried that we haven't been uh, radical enough, to be frank, in terms of the, the uh, accountability call of companies or for companies in this space. Yeah, and I, um, I, I have one concern as well um, in, in this, is, which is the power. Well, first of all, the concern, uh, which is huge, which is the, uh, the possibility of uh, NGO civil society in Hong Kong to actually do any meaningful work the, uh, that doesn't risk their lives and their freedom. And we, we had the um, privilege to talk to Sean uh, Sol in our previous episode, which is the heads the Labor Education uh, Ser uh, Services Network, and is um, uh, has been the chair of the Board of Trustees of Electronics Watch for since its uh, uh, foundation. So, and she was able to give us a little bit of a flavor of what was happening. And this wasn't even um, in the uh, last weeks when we've seen even more application of the so the national security law but um, in particular this concern that I have as well is the role of industry associations and how some companies they have traditionally done this and like um, hid themselves into codes of conduct their own uh, monitoring of their supply chain their own quote-unquote third-party um, uh, monitoring through multi-stakeholder uh, initiative, etc., and uh, especially in the electronics industry, we've always had the um, electronics uh, citizenship coalition uh, uh, before, and now is the RBA, the Responsible Business Alliance. And to some, to what extent this creates yet another level of uh, um, confusion, uh, another step in the chain, another blaring of the transparency. And, and it worries me that um, the RBA, for example, gets um, a say now in how to respond to some of the um, uh, claims that, for example, complicit um, uh, laid out, laid bare. What, what have you had, uh, Heather, a chance to see this in practice and to what extent can companies are just um, kind of relinquishing the, even their own minimal um, external CSR image to um, an even more fussy um, actor. Yeah, I found the industry associations have never been progressive actors for change within um, their sectors. And in my experience working with, uh, I wouldn't say working with, but working on initiatives that have involved the participation of industry associations, uh, they generally take the perspective of the most conservative members in their group, as opposed to 
actually aligning themselves with some of the views of the more open-minded, potentially progressive members of the association. So I've viewed them always as uh, generally not helpful um, in the process. And if they come out with their own, for example, auditing standards, or they put together their own uh, monitoring program, it's not going to be a very credible one. It's not going to be rigorous. It's not going to involve uh, members of civil society and NGOs in most cases that have a voice in the process and are uh, being used for the purpose of um, on the ground uh, information gathering that protects the confidentiality and the privacy of the workers. Um, so I don't hold out very much hope. I generally consider that uh, trade associations to be antagonistic uh, to the voices uh, for change that are coming um, from labor and from NGOs. And definitely um, they try to uh, eliminate the um, demands and the uh, potential power of trade unions within their industries, uh, you know, to the extent that they can, because these are all um, representatives of management um, in the associations. So basically uh, from square one, the um, voices and the rights of workers are not going to be treated as uh, high priority or as a first principle for um, trying to develop a theory of change. Yeah, oh, no, that's, no, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have one final question for you, um, Heather. I, um, it's been such an interesting conversation and, and um, I was involved in a panel recently about the use of film and the use of documentaries to get um, companies to change their behavior. That was in the context of climate and the climate crisis. So as an experienced filmmaker, um, what are the top, I guess, top tips or top uh, lessons or, you know, reflections that you would share with um, other film activists who are using, you know, the visual, the storytelling to, to get an immediate or you get a change? Well, I'm interested, Seema, in finding out what the the result of that conversation was were companies willing to make a change on the climate issue uh, because there's a film that's been made that everybody's been watching? Well, the people who made the films, so they were, of course, they're activists and not companies. <laughs> so oh. so the, con the conversation uh, was very much around capturing coal in Indonesia and the impacts of all the incredibly high levels of coal extraction in Indonesia. And the other one was around sort of Brazil. And as we know, all of the, um, you know, extreme deforestation of the rainforest and effect on indigenous peoples. And and, and as the person who's done advocacy around business and human rights, they asked me the question. They said, Seema, how can we use these films to basically get uh, accountability in this space? Um, and they were kind of, they were using a corruption forum, which is interesting because um, there was, the, and they had some interesting um, written material about sort of um, nefarious deals, you know, that are being made between companies and governments. I mean, I, I feel, and I've always felt this way about uh, affecting companies, you need to hit them where it hurts and where it hurts is with the global brands, not all of them, the global brands who we know it's their reputation 
And, you know, for the public companies, it's the people who whose reputation is also affected by investing in those and supporting those companies. Um, you know, I, I think that the film is so powerful because it is visual. It sort of takes a complex issue and like, and, and people understand it through the story. And the more those are basically um, sort of put on there, put out there, you know, the easier it is to shame the companies into uh, into a into taking accountability. Sometimes I wonder whether or not we sequence them enough. You know, so uh, you know, once there is the film, do we have an advocacy? I would see the film as part of a plan. You know, an action plan. It's not everything in itself. My own feeling is maybe we haven't sequenced it well enough. You know, um, and work together. That's a cross. You know, that's that's a collaborative effort. But to have this sort of do 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 use it and let's go. I mean, as just the last thing I'll say, because I'm speaking too much, is that you know this libel and defamatory risk, right? That we all face when we name companies, when we have these allegations and accusations. And I know from years of publishing that you know the evidence that you need to have the evidence. The standard is so tight; you have to be really careful you know, what you said. So it's almost as if those that have the evidence, we, we need to be working so much with people who have the evidence to basically really push as hard as we can. And often that is, in my view, through, through a legal route and legal avenues. Yes, legal avenues, I think, are really important because, you know, unless there's some type of accountability that the companies are held to, they're going to be able to continue to evade responsibility and deny, deny, or just use their money, um, use PR budgets yeah. to basically smooth everything out. I mean, for example, in trying to get complicit made, it was really a challenge. I mean, I'd been raising money as part of my work for years for Verite. Uh, when I left, the budget was, you know, a few million dollars a year that I had to raised for the organization. So I had a lot of contacts with funders. When I went to them to ask them if they would help with the uh, filming for Complicit with the uh, campaign that we were planning, because I had reached out to colleagues very early on um, saying, you know, this is what's happening. I'm going to give you the footage. Can we do a campaign together? I wasn't able to get any of my funders in the US to mm -hmm. write a check to support Complicit. And I had heard from one of them that Apple has a tremendous influence over mm -hmm. basically everything mm -hmm. um, that has to do with media. And foundations rely on their stock portfolio performance. And literally one person said to me, they're worried that if the stock price of the company goes down, that that'll influence their ability to give out money and they don't want to support anything that might have a negative impact on companies that are held in the stock portfolio. So, okay, well, that, that made a lot of sense. Um, and also explained, you know, why it was so difficult to get uh, foundations to support the film. Because some of them actually had put us in the finals for consideration, but then we just never made it. Uh, so I really had to rely on funders in... Uh, the UK and in Europe, who didn't have any ties or connections to Apple that they were worried about. But for activists, um, yeah, they've got to be very careful in terms of how they choose their projects, because if they're taking on 
a very deep pocketed corporate entity, it's going to be a challenge sometimes in where they're going to be able to get their film seen. For example, Complicit hasn't yet been released in the United States. Why is that? Well, we couldn't get into basically hardly any film festivals. Um, any film, I would do the research behind every film festival that rejected us. Every film festival that rejected us either had some kind of a sponsorship deal with Apple or an iTunes deal with Apple where the festival films were going to go up on the platform afterwards. Um, and in one case where we wanted to have our premiere, it turned out that Apple had somebody that was going to be their keynote speaker at the launch of the conference that accompanied the film festival. Okay, so um, <laughs> it's very difficult. We got no broadcast deals for the US um, for our film, whereas in Canada, Australia, across Europe, we had broadcast deals for so many different countries. I mean, I can't even name all of them where Complicit uh, was broadcast. <laughs> Uh, on very you know top quality news programs yeah so you, you know you, it's it's a struggle you, you've raised the topic of yet another podcast corporate capture right it's just it's uh it's a really important issue and i'm so glad that you brought it up because um it's uh it's even more impressive that you did get it out and you were able to get funding for it but this corporate capture issue i mean how can we have like a fair fight you know, when this is when this is essentially the backdrop you know that we're that we're operating in yeah, it's not a fair fight. And one of the reasons why I think um, my being based at the Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard when the project first began, which was so helpful, was because I was in a neutral environment and just in the position of an expert speaking out against what was happening in Apple's factories and uh, raising awareness around the suicides and other things that had been um, happening in China. But unless you have a a platform that's viewed as neutral so that the attacks by the companies are not successful in trying to undermine your credibility. Um, it's really tough. Like uh, the recent film Planet of the Humans that Michael Moore was one of the producers of, that film went down almost immediately taken off of YouTube. And then recently it was revealed that there was a, a concerted campaign by the billionaires that were criticized um, in the film to try to discredit it and there was um i mean maybe that might be a topic for an upcoming podcast you know, the, the, <laughs> well, the power that, that these firms have is uh is immense so yeah. it's really important to have campaigns and uh you know a very wide array of allies and funders mm -hmm. i mean kind of like the occupy wall street movement i think you know ultimately though it fizzled out more or less maybe it'll make a resurgence at some point, but um, that did have some very um, important lessons, I think, for how to take on um, corporate power in the current moment. Yeah, definitely. And and it, it more it increasing more and more, I think the pandemic has also seen the acceleration of uh, some of this um, examples of corporate uh, capture, but yeah, let's let's do the next podcast on this. <laughs> um, I just in the UK, I just wanted to uh, uh, big, do a big shout out of the, some of the people that uh, made screenings in the UK of Complicit. Uh, I was um, I had the privilege of being the one that um, Andy Davis from the London University's Purchasing Consortium did for the public sector, and I think that really made a, a massive impact into the way uh, public buyers, uh, universities, 
local authorities address their own responsibilities with regards to um, the electronics products they purchase through public procurement because it's the first time that um, uh, many of them had been exposed to these kinds of uh, these kinds of abuses and they are as public buyers people who do public contracts and purchasing maybe and not as um, you know aware as as, as activists uh, human rights sensitive so that was a, a significant impact I think and also I uh, also had the pleasure to go with Heather to the House of Lords where the where Baroness Young of Hornsey uh, uh, presented the movie to peers in the House of Lords so I, I guess uh, um, you know, that's been uh, pretty good examples of how you've managed to do a dent in the UK, um, at, at least. So Heather, I, it's uh, it's uh, fantastic. Always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, the uh, we're so excited for your new project. I think uh, you've totally uh, captured uh, a very important. Um, element which is this this idea of uh, fiction may reach uh, beyond the facts even when the facts are, are you know reality is even more uh, harrowing than um, than fiction so we can't wait to to see your script becoming a reality and you, can you give us a little sneak peek of what is what are you working on in terms of um, uh, topic or concept or shall we wait a bit more oh I can uh, no I'll, I can read you the log line oh, wonderful just hold on one second I'll pull it up um, is this some kind of uh, UK premiere of the log line of uh, <laughs> Heather? yes this is the this is the UK premiere of the log line nice um, yay <laughs> <laughs> Or I was very interested um, in all the different conspiracy theories that started coming out uh, when COVID-19, you know, first hit, and the fact that the Wuhan Virology Center um, emerged as a, as a as a possible origin of the virus, and then it was immediately discounted, and just recently the WHO returned from their investigative trip in China that included a tour of the Wuhan Virology Center, but it was a year later. So, you know, um, quite a bit of time has passed, but there's been quite a bit of suspicion um, and conversation around it. And for me, I was interested that they, global experts were saying that the virus had originated in Wuhan. And I personally don't have an opinion about where it came from and its origins. I'm mostly interested in telling a story, but I think it's interesting to note that uh, although there have been several pandemics that have originated in China or epidemics um, over the last 80 to 100 years, none of them have ever come from Wuhan. They've always come from Guangdong province. Um, so to have a pandemic of global proportions originating from Wuhan is um, kind of an interesting conundrum um, for mm -hmm. me. So, okay, here's the log line for uh, the film. Amid a, gra uh, amid a rapidly growing second global pandemic in 2023, a PhD biologist has her world turned upside down when her boss 
at a prestigious university gets arrested for selling bioweapon secrets to the Chinese government. As she and a colleague seek to clear her name, their investigation takes them to the Wuhan Virology Lab and Western China, where genocide against the Uyghur ethnic minority is underway. Eventually the clock counts down on a terrifying plot disguised as a global bioweapons conspiracy. So that that's basically it. Fantastic. That sounds really, really fantastic. Wow. But I'll give you a spoiler because I don't want to get accused of uh, trafficking and conspiracy theories that <laughs> the virology sensor is not the source of the virus. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I like it. Fantastic. Well, we... Um, yeah, we you heard it here first, but we are so uh, so grateful that um, you spend your morning with us, um, and uh, that uh, we we were able to chat and exchange this um, uh, such an interesting and important topic with someone that has been right at the center of um, of uh, human rights and and labor rights and supply chain and and health uh, and uh, and now in your as well um, work to do with the genocide um, against the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang province. So thank you, Heather. And, thank you very uh, much. We, thank you. We hope to interview you again uh, after the premiere. Any, any idea of who, who will play this amazing heroine uh, <laughs> biologist? <laughs> Okay. okay. Well, um, Olga, are you are you, are you looking for a career change, Olga? Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This human rights. I always thought I might have some kind of uh, <laughs> art actress in me. Actor in me. Oh well, I don't actually have any real expectations that it'll get made into a film because, as you're probably all aware. It takes millions of dollars and Hollywood's consent to get uh, thrillers uh, actually ever seen on the screen. But um, I've been writing the screenplay basically for my own enjoyment and I'm planning on uh, just making it available to people who might want to read it. I'm just going to put it up online unless I hear from somebody that Netflix wants it. But I really don't have expectations um, well, for it to become a, amazing a film. Amazing students. I'm sure if anything we can we can try to do a small um documentary a small uh, sorry film uh, at, at at Greenwich with our amazing media students how about that Oh that sounds good I just saw that there is a, a pandemic film on uh Netflix and it looks like it was maybe filmed on a university campus and inside <laughs> well, one of the dorms yeah, it looks like there's only two sites <laughs> that they used for the filming so okay well rasa that's our new project <laughs> yes, <laughs> wonderful yes. thank you heather great talk Bye. Bye.